Hello and welcome to the Texas Radical, the show that kicks over the underbelly of Texas to expose the rot underneath. I am Stacy Davis and I'm joined today by Kevin Camps. Kevin Camps is uh, from Beyond Nuclear. He is the radioactive watchdog, the radioactive waste watchdog there. Hello, Kevin, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much for coming. Hi, Stacy. It's a real honor. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to jump right into it. I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos that you've been a guest on today, and uh, I learned something that I didn't know, and uh, that's all about uh, Pimtex. Can you tell me a little bit about Pimtex and what they're doing over there? And also, go, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, yeah, Pantex is a major nuclear weapons facility in Texas. And uh, the good side of the coin is that they disassemble nuclear weapons there. And the bad side is that they assemble nuclear weapons there. And so wouldn't you know that they've really dragged their feet on the disassembly um, <laughs> quota. And then when it comes time to put them together, they just get that done lickety split, you know. So messed up priorities. Um, one of the interesting things about Pantex is there's so much plutonium and explosive at that facility that they have some pretty serious bunkers out there to try to contain blasts. That wouldn't help the workers who are nearby, but it would try to protect local residents like in Amarillo. But plutonium is so ultra hazardous that just a microscopic speck inhaled into the human lung can initiate lung cancer and probably will. It may take years, it may take decades to manifest, but once you've inhaled it, there's no getting it out. So that's going on in West Texas. So this is in West, so you say this is around Amarillo. That was gonna be my next question. Where is it? I looked it up and it looks like there's an office just south of Houston, uh, but I didn't see where the actual facility was. Yeah, it's near Amarillo. And um, you know, my main focus is uh, nuclear power and radioactive waste issues, but we're a part of the Alliance for Nuclear Accountability, which is mostly weapons complex watchdog groups. And mm -hmm. one of the really great ones is um, Peace Farm which has been watchdogging Pantex for many decades. And okay. a good friend and colleague of mine, Lon Burnham, is very involved uh, with the Peace Farm. He's based in Dallas-Fort Worth with the Dallas Peace and Justice Center. And Lon and I have also worked very closely on the issue that I'm really focused on these days, which is the consolidated interim storage facilities for high-level radioactive waste. And wouldn't you know, West Texas and southeastern New Mexico are being targeted for what is really the world's largest high-level radioactive waste dump if they get away with it and we're fighting it with everything we have. Well, is there already nuclear waste there? What is at this site in Texas, and Andrews County is extreme West Texas right up against Eunice, New Mexico. And you've got a concentration, actually I've got a map behind me and it shows in the southeastern corner, there's quite a concentration of nuclear facilities down there. On the Texas side, what you have is waste control specialists. And unfortunately for Texas and for the Oglala Aquifer, this is a national so-called low-level radioactive waste dump. So it's taking in waste from most states. And they seem to specialize in really hazardous so-called low-level radioactive waste. So they have some of the hottest stuff around being dumped out there. And this company and its greed now wants to move on to high-level radioactive waste, the commercial irradiated nuclear fuel from 129 reactors in this country. This is the stuff that comes out of the core. And um, <clears throat> so that would put the Oglala at further risk. 
just across the border, the reason that waste control specialists set up shop where it did right on the border with New Mexico is there's a facility in Eunice called Urenco, which is short for Uranium Enrichment Corporation. Urenco is a very infamous company, as is waste control specialists, but one of Urenco's claims to infamy is that the Pakistani nuclear weapons program is complements of Urenco. One of its workers over in Europe didn't show up for work one Monday morning, a Pakistani uh, chemist, metallurgist. He took the blueprints and went back to Pakistan. And so that uranium centrifuge technology that exists in southeastern New Mexico also exists in Pakistan now. They use it to make nuclear weapons with. So we fought actually um, Urenco really hard trying to prevent it from setting up shop, but they got away with it because of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. It's this rubber stamp agency. So the wastes from Urenco go, will, will ultimately, supposedly go to waste control specialists right across the border there for permanent dumping. And what's really sleazy about it all is the governor at the time in New Mexico, Bill Richardson, who used to be energy secretary under Clinton, and he was UN ambassador under Clinton. He said, you know, he put his foot down and he said, Urenco can't come into our state unless the waste leaves our state. Yeah, it's going to leave the state. It's going to go like a mile or two across the border. And wouldn't you know, the water flows back into New Mexico. So um, in addition to waste control specialists trying to set up this high-level waste dump, which they call interim storage partners because they've involved a French company now called Orano, used to be called Arriva. Before that, it was called Kojima. They build up this bad reputation and change their name. But uh, Arriva, now Orano, is infamous. They have 58 reactors in France. One of the, you know, just examples I like to put out there is an Arriva spokesman said publicly one time that they should just go ahead and wipe out the Tuareg nomads in the Sahara who are getting in the way of their uranium mining. That's where France gets its uranium for French reactors. Another infamous thing Arriva does is... Um, it's the biggest reprocessor of high-level radioactive waste in the Western world. And they have this underwater pipeline into the English Channel that they discharge radioactive waste through into the English Channel, the Atlantic Ocean. It's gone all the way to the Canadian Arctic. And truth be told, um, Arriva Arano at Waste Control Specialists would just love to reprocess the high-level radioactive waste down there. It would be a nightmare in terms of the radioactive pollution just 40 miles from waste control specialists is another and even bigger proposed consolidated interim storage facility for commercial irradiated nuclear fuel. It's called Holtec, and I've got my Holtec t-shirt on. <laughs> Holtec is a company based in New Jersey and Florida. Uh, they are international. They are crooked. And uh, to give you an idea how much bigger, uh, interim storage partners in Texas wants to store 40,000 metric tons of high-level radioactive waste. That's about half of what exists in the country right now. Uh, inter, um, sorry, uh, Holtec over in uh, New Mexico wants to store 173,000 metric tons. So over 200,000 altogether. And these sites are so close together, 40 miles apart, that it's really one dump, two different companies. Actually, the CEO of Holtec, Krishna Singh, when they launched their application a few years ago, he said he didn't see waste control specialists as competition, he saw them as complementary. Mm -hmm. So that quantity of over 200,000 metric tons, that is uh, three times as much waste as could go to the Yucca Mountain, Nevada dump, which has been in the works for 33 years. It ain't going to happen because 
the state of Nevada, the Western Shoshone Indians, a thousand plus environmental groups in this country have said, nope, yucca is not happening. It's an environmental injustice outrage. And more than that, um, it's a violation of treaty rights. It's scientifically unsuitable. It's not consent-based. So what's really a huge lie about consolidated interim storage facilities, this notion of temporariness, is it's not. It's going to be de facto permanent because it has nowhere to go. Once it gets to Texas, once it gets to New Mexico, it's staying put and nobody else wants it. And if, uh, you know, if your state and your, your neighbor there are, you know, unwise enough to let this stuff come in, it's never going to leave. And so you talked about um, the low-level waste versus the high-level waste. What, what is the low-level waste like there now, and how is that going to change when it becomes high-level waste? Yeah, so we have one of the worst categorization schemes in the world, surprise, surprise, here in the United States. Um, high-level radioactive waste on the commercial side, I use the term loosely. Um, it's actually referred to usually as spent nuclear fuel, but it's a euphemism that the industry cooked up. They also say used nuclear fuel. Uh, there's nothing spent or used about it. Uh, it is highly radioactive, irradiated nuclear fuel. So when nuclear fuel, which is made of uranium and metal, uh, uranium pellets made of ceramic, uh, when they go into a reactor before they go in, uh, you can handle them. Workers in, you know, paper suits with gloves and probably face masks or not are handling it. It's contained, hopefully, unless they really screwed up making it. Um, it is mildly or um, low radioactive at that point. It's still hazardous and you shouldn't mess around with it. But once it comes out of a reactor, um, it is millions of times more radioactive because what happens is the uranium atoms get split and artificial elements are formed, things that don't exist in nature. So some big ones are like radioactive cesium-137, a real culprit at Chernobyl in that catastrophe, contaminated Europe, essentially, especially Ukraine and Belarus and Russia. Another one is radioactive strontium-90, which is a bone seeker. Cesium is a muscle seeker. Uh, plutonium is another artificial element. We mentioned how ultra hazardous that is in terms of lung cancer. Um, so you got all these new fission products and transuranics and activation products that don't exist in nature in this high level radioactive waste. Low level radioactive waste by comparison is everything that's not in a fuel rod. And as a colleague over at Nuclear Information and Resource Service, uh, Diane DeRigo, another real watchdog on all these issues, puts it, you know, it's what leaks out of the fuel rods. And so, you know, in the cooling water, in the reactor, um, there's all this stuff that gets out and then it gets caught on filters or it doesn't get caught on filters. It contaminates the nuclear power plant, uh, workers' clothes and tools. That's all considered low-level radioactive waste. It's everything that is not a fuel rod, which is everything else. And what's so absurd about all this is there's one category. It goes class A low-level, class B, class C in increasing radioactivity content. Then there's a category called greater than class C, <laughs> which is highly radioactive. And because it's so highly radioactive, it has to be treated like high-level radioactive waste. So um, there are categories of low-level radioactive waste that have to be remote handled behind radiation shielding because it could deliver a lethal dose of gamma and neutron radiation, like x-rays, only more intense, at a close range without radiation shielding in just a matter of like 20 minutes. Uh, 
But um, irradiated nuclear fuel uh, can deliver that same fatal dose without radiation shielding in just a matter of a few minutes at most, or if it's fresh out of the core of a reactor within seconds. So this is um, not only intensely deadly <laughs> in the near term, it remains very deadly really forevermore into the future, irradiated nuclear fuel. We're talking, you know, we forced under court order the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to recognize a million years of hazard, a million years associated with high-level radioactive waste. But the truth is it's much longer. One of the radioactive isotopes called iodine-129 has a 15 million year half-life, oh, which means you have to multiply by 10 to get the hazardous persistence. That's 150 million years of hazard. And that's a part of the problem with this stuff getting stuck in Texas and New Mexico. The containers that hold it are going to corrode, degrade, breach open, turn to dust and blow away. And this stuff will still be deadly. And if it's not contained, if it's not replaced into a new container, uh, that's going to corrode and breach and turn to dust and blow on the wind and contaminate, you know, um, the air, the water, the food supply. So this stuff now has to be isolated forever. And that's a real challenge for critters yeah. like humans who aren't real good at that kind of thing. And I'm assuming and fact, these, we have these leaks all the time. And I'm assuming these companies that, um, that are storing this facility will be dried up and gone by the time uh, it's time to replace these. So it'll be, you know, uh, it's out of our hands. We've been closed for 20 years. I want to talk, I want to ask you a little bit about the, the water that I know that, um, well, this is probably radioactive facilities, which there, there's one in Dallas and there's one uh, just north of Palacios here in Texas. South Texas Nuclear and then the Cherokee, right? Is, or the Comanche. Comanche Peak. Where do they get the water? How do they store the water? And where do, is that the sort of thing that they're storing at the West Texas location? Uh, there are some radioactive wastewater um, streams, waste streams, so to speak, that are sent out to uh, waste control specialists for disposal, unfortunately. Um, I'm thinking of like tritium contaminated wastewater, I think from Vermont Yankee atomic reactor, I heard recently was being sent down to waste control specialists. I think there's another low level waste dump up in Utah called energy solutions that may have been yeah. the place it went to. But so yes, there are radioactive wastewater streams out there. Uh, a really infamous one these days is at Fukushima Daiichi, Japan. They have more than a million tons of highly radioactively, intensely radioactively contaminated wastewater Tritium is a big culprit, but there's other stuff in there they can't get out. That's like 267 million gallons. And uh, the Japanese government and um, Tokyo Electric Power Company want to dump it in the Pacific. <laughs> so Well, they are dumping by. it in the Pacific. They don't just want to. They're doing yeah, it. Yeah, they, they have streams they can't control. They have leaks. But this is a mother load of radioactivity uh. that they, they have contained right now. But for convenience sake and to save money, why can't we just dump it, you know? Who cares about the ocean? So um, there isn't, in the United States, um, unfortunately, a lot of this dumping takes place right at the nuclear power plants. They have routine releases of radioactive wastewater into, you know, the Gulf of Mexico from South Texas projects. Um, they have permission from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to do this. So it gets really wow. ghoulish because they have cost-benefit analyses they look at and they 
supposedly try to figure out how many people are going to be hurt by that. And then they decide that, you know, the profits the company are making really outweigh the people getting hurt. So yeah, go ahead. And they, they'll never really talk openly about it with the public. You really got to corner them on it. And then they have all the deceptions that they throw at you, but it's going on. People are being hurt. Uh, it's hard to tell how many. We do have a cancer epidemic in this country uh, that's kind of mysterious. Where's it coming from? Well, we are discharging on a routine basis radioactivity into our environment, <laughs> which then doesn't dilute. Um, you know, dilution is the solution is a lie. It reconcentrates in the food chain, up the food chain, and delivers a more potent dose to people who may eat seafood from the Gulf contaminated with South Texas Project's radioactive wastewater. Um, so that's going on, but what's being, you know, proposed for interim storage is um, the fuel rods itself. So that's, they are solid, um, but they will disintegrate over time. They're having a real bad um, track record with failed fuel. That's now more like, you know, chunks and powder. And it just shows how hard it is to contain. And uh, these companies, you mentioned that they're going to walk away. Yeah, that's their business model. They create these limited liability corporations and the, the parent company is separated with mm -hmm. layers of liability protection. So the money goes to the parent. And if the LLC goes bankrupt, well, sorry, you know, state, state rate payers or more like state taxpayers are going to have to pay for the cleanup or it just won't get done. You know, that kind of thing or the federal government may come in with federal taxpayer dollars. But, um, you know, when you're messing around with the Oglala, which is essential to eight states on the high plains for drinking water and irrigation water, that's a huge risk to be taking. And how, and, and let's talk a little bit about the risk to the Oglala. Is there, is there any evidence of leakage or, or anything like that so far? Well, the company, Waste Control Specialists, which was founded by a Dallas billionaire named Harold Simmons, who has passed away back in 2013. His nickname was the King of Superfund Sites. And one of his, uh, you know, things he did was he was the one who paid for the swift voting of John Kerry in 2004. Uh, yes. And he was also, uh, Harold Simmons, the biggest single by far campaign contributor to Rick Perry's political career. So Who's now every, the energy secretary is. Well, he was, but he, um, he left late last year. Okay. And um, he is back in Texas looking to make money. <laughs> and uh, one thing that Rick Perry did, um, you know, he ran for governor all those times. He ran for president. I mean, we're talking millions of dollars of campaign contributions from this nuclear waste dump king. That's where Perry got his money. So guess what? Perry was all for this dump. And in March of 2019, as energy secretary last year, he was at a house hearing testifying and he was asked, hey, you know, this waste control specialist, high level waste dump, you know, if that were to become permanent, you'd be okay with that, right? And Perry said, oh yeah, I'd be fine with it being permanent. And I, the people of Andrews are fine with it being permanent. I've met some people in Andrews who are not fine with it being permanent or coming there at all. So, you know, it's a big money-making scheme for a very small number of people. And it makes sense that, you know, Rick Perry is such a big cheerleader. You know, his whole career has been based on the money flowing from that dump and other toxic dumps that, that um, Harold Simmons owned. There's a new owner now at Waste Control Specialists, um, J.F. Lehman. And uh, he's a former um, Secretary of the Navy I can't remember which administration right now, um, has involvement in the tailhook sexual assault scandal um, in the Navy's um, past. And 
is a huge military contractor. And so one concern too, if you look at the advertising come on, coming out of waste control specialists these days, they're not just talking about commercial radioactive waste. They, they are talking about military. There's all this imagery of aircraft carriers and, uh, you know, fighter jets. And so, you know, the Navy, um, and he, this guy, the new owner was secretary of the Navy. They've got um, nuclear Navy irradiated nuclear fuel. A lot of it's stored in, temporarily so-called up in Idaho right now. And uh, interestingly, the, the congressman who asked that question was from Idaho. So I don't know if there was a connection there, but Idaho would love to get that naval irradiated nuclear fuel out of there. Idaho also has a research reactor um, irradiated nuclear fuel. They also have stuff coming back from overseas. So research reactor fuel from overseas that the U.S. loaned out under Adams for Peace and, you know, something like 41 countries in the Western sphere return it to the U.S. They have to because it's highly enriched uranium fuel. That's weapons usable. And now it's irradiated nuclear fuel with plutonium in it and plutonium's weapons usable. So the U.S. wants it back and they, they take it to Idaho for temporary storage, but it's got to leave by 2035 or Idaho will start to fine the U.S. government. I think it's $10,000 a day after that. So I don't know what waste control specialists may be scheming in terms of this military waste, but the quantities for the consolidated interim storage being so huge, uh, 213,000 metric tons, there's only less than 100,000 in the United States right now. And a lot of reactors are closing down because they're so old. So one of our expert witnesses in the opposition was asking, where are they coming up with these figures from? Are they talking military, high-level radioactive waste? Are they talking foreign countries, high-level radioactive waste? Not just that research reactor stuff, but like Canada has an immense amount of high-level radioactive commercial waste. So what is the scheme? You know, Are they open to Japan's waste? Are they open to other countries? And they would say, oh, no, no, we're just talking the U.S., you know, but um, we don't trust them. <laughs> so, yeah, I wouldn't trust them. So, so they, they, th this radioactive waste, where are they storing it now? I mean, do they store it sort of close to the facility? And then, and then, you know, I think we should talk about transport a little bit. They, they put it in containers, they put it on a train, and they ship it here. And then, we're, I mean, basically, we're also talking about taking a, ra a radioactive uh, waste facility that's storing a relatively small amount now, but we're talking about expanding it to, what did you say, a hundred and how many facilities that they want to take on waste and start storing? It was well, there's 129 commercial atomic reactors in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, only 94 are still operating. The okay. rest have shut down and are in various uh, stages of decommissioning which is dismantlement. And um, the thing about even the shutdown plants though, even the ones that have completed decommissioning and all you have now is a field which may be radioactively contaminated, um, but the high level waste is still there. So that gets to answering your question. Um, something like two thirds of the irradiated nuclear fuel in the commercial industry is stored in what are called wet storage pools, which are indoors at the nuclear power plants. They're not in the containment building that houses the atomic reactor, unfortunately, because they are in warehouse type buildings. So they are indoors, but these are not robust structures. Oof. And there is a danger that if a pool were to lose its cooling water supply, that you could have a fire in the high level radioactive waste pool. And there's so much concentrated high level radioactive waste in there that this would be a mega catastrophe. 
And this almost happened at Fukushima Daiichi in Japan at unit number four. They came precariously close to having a pool fire in addition to the reactor meltdowns. And what got out were the reactor meltdowns and the failed containments around the reactors. And it led to, you know, this massive nuclear catastrophe, second only to Chernobyl. 160,000 nuclear evacuees in Japan who can never go home again. But if, if that pool had caught on fire, the prime minister who was serving at the time, Naoto Kan, admitted a year later after he was out of office that he had a secret contingency plan in the works to evacuate up to 50 million people in northeastern Japan, which is, you know, pushing more than a third to a half the population of the country. Where they to, would go to? To where? Where would they go? Oh, that's the thing. He said it would have been the end of the Japanese state. Mm. That's what a pool fire can do. And actually in the United States, our pools are more densely packed than that one in Japan. So we're taking huge risks with these pools. And so we've been trying hard to get the waste out of the pools into dry cast storage, which is um, these silos of concrete and steel. And in fact, a third of the waste is already in dry casks because the pools are only so big. They are packed to the gills. So what they do is when the core has to be unloaded to put fresh fuel in, for another couple years of nuclear power generation, the, uh, the fuel comes out of the core, a third of the core comes out, uh, fresh fuel goes in, and that third that comes out of the core goes into the wet storage pool because it's so hot, it has to be in this cooling water. So they take the oldest, supposedly, they're supposed to do this, take the oldest fuel out of the pool and put it in dry casks. It's the most cooled down thermally, it's the most radioactively decayed. They cheat all the time for their own convenience or cost savings and they put some fuel into dry casks to make room in the pool. So a third of this, you know, 90,000 metric tons, you know, about 30,000 metric tons is in dry casks already. They are very problematic. They're badly designed, badly fabricated dry casks um, all over the country. Holtec, this company in New Mexico that wants to set up shop, they are a dry cask uh, storage container manufacturer. That's been their history for since the mid-1980s. It's how they got started. They've expanded into other areas now. But just to give you an example, um, whistleblowers from the industry side and from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission side out at Holtec back in the year 2000, 2003 is when I met them, um, for widespread quality assurance violations with the design and the manufacture of their own containers. So there are very serious structural integrity questions about these Holtec containers sitting still, storing waste at nuclear power plants, you know, going zero miles per hour. But the problem is really that these are the containers that they're gonna put on the railroad tracks, like you said, or mm -hmm. perhaps heavy haul truck on the roads or barge on surface waters, perhaps even into the port of Houston. That's a real possibility. That makes perfect so sense. If, if they get into a severe crash, if they get into a severe fire that lasts a long time, if they're involved in an underwater submersion that lasts a long time, all of these accident scenarios, or God forbid, a terrorist attack on a shipment, it's really questionable whether they're going to survive these severe forces they're subjected to, even if uh, the design criteria required by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission are met, they're very weak, they're minimal design criteria. And it's very likely that Holtec has not even met that. And, the, and so, those are, so, so basically these containers are at the South Texas nuclear facility, where, which is dangerously close to the water in a 
very, very hurricane prone area of the planet. Um, so there, and, and it's sort of not, a, a, I mean, you just look, I just drove by the South Texas nuclear project not too long ago. And I was sort of surprised at how close to the water it was. Um, I don't know, it's like a mile or two inward, inland, uh, maybe a little bit more. But certainly within a flooding zone, and um, I can't imagine, I mean, you, you think about it, you've got highly radioactive water uh, in a container with cement, and I've seen water corrode cement, and, uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, it doesn't seem all that stable. And yeah, now, there's all kinds of corrosion and cracking throughout the nuclear power industry with the reactors, with the waste containers, it's widespread, and... Uh, when you're dealing with something that's deadly forever, that's, you know, there's this great documentary film called Containment. And it looks at that question that, you know, one, one issue is called loss of institutional control. Let's say they, sh they set up these dumps in Texas and New Mexico. So loss of institutional control essentially means, you know, eventual societal collapse that mm -hmm. they're not gonna take care of the containers. And if they breach, there's not gonna be anybody around who will replace them or know how to. And that's a problem because once the stuff starts getting out, it's going to poison people and whole regions. So that's the dilemma. And that's what that film examines. We'll have to watch that. Now at the West Texas facility and the New Mexico facility for that matter, you know, you think of Yucca Mountain and you imagine it and I don't, I've never been there. I've never seen it. I haven't really done that much research into it, but you know, the, 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 the me that wants things to be a certain way imagines it being deep into some kind of underground tunnel. What is, it, what, are the, what is it really like at these facilities? Are they underground? Are they buried? Or are they just sitting out in the open? Well, Yucca Mountain is, wow, what a epic story. I mean, um, the good news is that dump has been stopped for 33 years. There was this legislation in Congress called the Screw Nevada Bill of 1987. <laughs> that was the informal name, but everybody calls it that. It was the Nuclear Waste Policy Amendments Act of 1987. And it essentially screws Nevada. So there, were, there was a site search. There were two site searches in the country, one in the east where all the, most of the reactors are in the east and one in the west. And the east and the states out west being targeted like Texas at the time and like Washington state, they all ganged up on Nevada. And they said, guess what, Nevada? We're choosing you. So any notion of scientific site suitability search went out the window. But the site is so unsuitable at, at Nevada that it has caught up a long time ago. It's, um, you know, it looks arid at the surface, but um, it actually is water saturated underground. And so incredibly, there is a tunnel. It's called the Exploratory Studies Facility. It's um, Yucca Mountain is a, a ridge. The Western Shoshone whose land it is, their name for Yucca Mountain is Serpent Swimming Westward. So it is kind of a serpentine ridge. What's really interesting is by the late 1990s, Western science caught up with the Western Shoshone and with uh, satellite technology discovered that Yucca Mountain is moving westward at a pretty high rate of speed. Wow. And it's a very seismically active area. It's actually volcanically active. If you stand on the crest of Yucca Mountain and you look west across the valley, there are a series of volcanic cones marching off westward. So, um, there are not only earthquake risks at Yucca, but there are volcanic risks at Yucca. And even if none of that happens, the water that saturates the underground uh, is going to corrode the waste burial containers, release their contents into the groundwater. And downstream of Yucca, you've got 
the biggest agricultural community in Nevada. It's called Amargosa Valley. You've got the Timbusha Shoshone who live in Death Valley. So you're going to be, it's a nuclear sacrifice zone downstream of Yucca if it ever opens. There's no waste there. We fended it off for a generation. They keep trying. And in fact, the Texas and New Mexico temporary dumps are assuming that Yucca will open. That's how they can stand by their temporary claim. Uh, Yucca is not going to open. Nevada is adamant. The Western Shoshone, whose treaty rights recognize Yucca as their land, have said no. So it's not legal. It's not scientifically suitable. It's not consent-based. It violates every precept of geologic disposal for high-level radioactive waste. And that tunnel, the Exploratory Studies Facility, it goes a mile into the mountain, three miles down the ridge line, and then a mile back out. So you have two tunnel mouths. And that's what it is. It's really the driveway in, and they call it the Exploratory Studies Facility. If they were to go forward, they would have to dig side tunnels off that three mile okay. um, ridge line parallel, uh, something like 40 miles more of tunnel to put the waste in. And that's where Yucca's price tag goes through the roof. They've already spent something like $15 billion out there without ever opening. But if they were to open, the Department of Energy has estimated it would cost, uh, what was the figure? Close to $100 billion for the first 200 years. But Yucca is forever, you know, a dump would be forever. So the first 200 years would cost $100 billion. <laughs> but that's all off the table. It's not happening. So, you know, that's why I say if the waste comes to Texas and New Mexico, it's got nowhere else to go. And the vote in Congress about moving it again, think about it. It would be in the House, it would be 434 to 1 because <laughs> yeah. everybody else would be like, why don't you just keep it? Right. You know? In the Senate, it would be 98 to 2. Why don't you just keep it? So don't, don't let it happen. And so what is the... What is the what is the nature of the waste in the West Texas facility? Is it above ground? Is it below ground? Like, what does it look like? Yeah, waste control specialists, um, what they do out there is they dig the pretty deep um, trenches. They sometimes line them with concrete. And then they start emplacing the waste in the bottom of these trenches, which are huge. They're, they're monumental in scale. And the waste could be contained in concrete boxes, um, various containers. And then eventually they're just gonna fill that in with dirt and sweep it under the rug and walk away, assuming that you know it'll stay put. That's a big assumption. I mean, the thing about low level waste is it's everything that's in high level waste, just at lesser concentrations. You've got plutonium in there, you've got cesium in there, you've got strontium in there in lower concentrations, but when you're a national low-level waste dump, taking waste from pretty much the rest of the country, that's a lot of low-level radioactive waste. And they cut corners all the time. Um, you know, they screw up all the time. And like I said earlier, um, waste control specialist is pretty infamous for what they take. They'll take anything, they want it all. They'll just charge you for it, you know? Mm -hmm. So one, one example, the news just broke today, um, the waste isolation pilot plant in southeastern New Mexico, which is military plutonium contaminated waste from okay. the weapons complex. It's the, it's the United States and maybe the world's first repository for radioactive waste. They call it low level, this plutonium, it, it's transuranic waste beyond uranium on the periodic table. They can call it low level, but it's plutonium. <laughs> it's ultra hazardous. And in fact, they had an accident in 2014. It was Valentine's Day. 
they were not supposed to have any accident like this. They said this was impossible. What happened was a barrel in the whip underground, which is a salt formation. They've carved caverns in a salt formation 2,000 feet down. The barrel- Let me, let me stop you there for just a second, because you're putting a metal and concrete container full of radioactive waste in a salt mine, but salt is yeah. corrosive. Yes. Um, okay. And, at that, at that whip dump, waste isolation pilot plant, it's mostly metal barrels, 55-gallon drums. And inside, they have all kinds of radioactive waste that's contaminated with plutonium, americium, other transuranics, neptunium. Um, what happened was one of these barrels had a chemical reaction going on in it that they didn't know about. They should have, but they didn't because they screwed up big time at Los Alamos where it came from. And... Uh, it burst, the barrel burst from the pressure buildup inside. And incredibly, a cloud of plutonium dust floated through the air in the underground thousands of feet over to the ventilation shaft, floated thousands of feet to the surface, and then went into the environment. And there were a couple dozen workers at the surface who breathed it in. And you breathe in plutonium and it's a high risk of lung cancer someday. And of course, the Department of Energy always says, oh, it, it won't happen. They won't, get, they won't get lung cancer. Well, we'll see. I mean, if, if their health is followed. The only reason the WIP underground wasn't full of workers that day was because they'd had an industrial mine accident several days earlier. They had a vehicle catch fire. It hadn't been maintained in decades. It caught fire and it sent a couple dozen people to the emergency room with smoke inhalation. One was permanently disabled. But in a sense, it was a lucky thing because the whip underground could have been full of workers with no respiratory protection, breathing in concentrated plutonium doses into their lungs. And it was a fluke that that didn't happen. So whip was shut down for three years. It cost $2 billion of US taxpayer money just to return to service because of a single barrel that burst in the underground. There are hundreds of thousands of barrels down there already. Wow. They would like to add hundreds of thousands more. And that long story there, just to say that when Los Alamos had this accident at WIP, they still wanted to meet their schedule to get bonus money for meeting their schedule. So what did they do? They sent potentially explosive barrels, which had already burst at WIP in the underground, down to waste control specialists for storage until it could go to WIP. So they got their bonus for meeting their schedule. Oh, I see. So they sent it over to us. Leaving the stuff at the surface and... To make matters worse, they put it in a concrete overpack that was painted black. And that stuff sat out there for several summers absorbing the desert sun and heats the problem. So they were tempting fate to have another one of these barrels burst at the surface. If it cost $2 billion to deal with an underground burst, what would that have cost at the surface? People live at the surface. People grow food at the surface. People drink water at the surface. So yeah, they're, they're really, you know, taking huge risks. They want to, you know, now add high level waste to all that. What is the likelihood of, of these reactions going on in the containers? What do they do to uh, alleviate these reactions and, and how likely is it that these are going on? It seems like it's a, it's just a numbers game that they will, that there will be, I mean, all, all it takes is a couple of molecules to start a reaction. How do you stop something like that? Well, in their rush, there was a Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists article about what happened at Los Alamos that caused this $2 billion, you know, fiasco. And the ultimate cause was that they were just trying to make money to speed up processes, to meet deadlines, to get bonuses. 
So the most infamous mistake they made was uh, they would actually use kitty litter. They would use um, inorganic kitty litter to absorb liquids in the low level radioactive waste. So that would get thrown into these barrels so that it wouldn't leak out of the barrels. It would be absorbed by this inorganic clay-based kitty litter. A typo was made on a requisition form and now it was organic kitty litter, which was plant-based. Ah, And so that was, a, that was a mistake. That was what it's basically so a big compost pile. Reaction. It was like a fire. There was yeah. a slow motion fire, slow burn in the barrel because of this organic kitty litter. But in addition, they had put lead in there. They had put nitrates in there. That was the source of the chemical reaction. And so some of these barrels, potentially explosive barrels, are still at waste control specialists. Why? All these years later? Because they're too dangerous to transport the short distance, 40 miles up to the whip site. So guess what? Back in 2014, when they shipped it in a hurry from Los Alamos down to waste control specialists, that was a huge high risk. And basically, it's the same stuff in the barrel that exploded. And you, yeah, the same it, mix well, yeah, of stuff. it is. It yeah. is. And what's really scary, um, a watchdog on WIP who's been at it for close to half century now, um, Don Hancock, Southwest Research and Information Center in Albuquerque, this is who I learned this from. The Department of Energy has now has spent millions of dollars trying to replicate what happened with this underground barrel burst. And they've worked on it for years and spent millions of dollars, run experiments over and over, and they've never been able to replicate it. So that kitty litter, lead, lead and nitrates um, explanation is a working hypothesis. They don't wow. really know what happened. And yet you've got barrels in Texas that contain the same mix as what exploded in New Mexico. So it's kind of scary stuff, but you know, it's almost, it's a, it's a small example of the craziness going on, but Holtec, New Mexico and Interim Storage Partners, Texas, this is a, this is a big one. <laughs> this is the vast, I mean, we're talking, I think the figure is something like 95% of all radioactivity, all artificial radioactivity in the United States is in the commercial high level radioactive waste. You, you put everything else together from the weapons complex, the entire commercial low-level radioactive waste stream, all of that, 5%. 95% of the hazardous radioactivity are in the fuel rods that they want to ship down your way. Whoa. Even transport um, is dangerous, um, you know, going through major cities to get down to so, the southwest. So basically what we're doing is we're trying to take the 5% that we have now and turn it into... 95% of all radioactive nuclear waste. This is not a small change um, in the, in the goings on at waste control specialists. Um, ironically, you know, New Mexico doesn't even have atomic reactors within its border <laughs> and they would get most of the country's high level radioactive Yikes. waste from atomic reactors. So the environmental injustice aspects are huge. The good news is, you know, I mentioned that we've staved off the yucca dump for a generation. We've also stopped really dozens of these consolidated interim storage facilities over the decades. They used to target Native American reservations. Sure. In fact, Mescalero Apache in southeastern New Mexico was targeted for one of these consolidated interim storage facilities 20 plus years ago. It went pretty far in the process, but it was stopped. Uh, an alliance of traditionals on the reservation fighting their own corrupt tribal council chairman who wanted the money and uh, environmental justice coalition across the country, including people that live with the wastes in their communities after the nuclear power plant sites, 
who don't want to, you know, dump their problems on somebody else. That's not the answer. So the, the interim answer that has come up, been come up with by the environmental movement, 200 groups in 50 states have endorsed this, is called hardened on-site storage. So even at a place like South Texas Project, to store it in a much better way than is going on now, okay. um, you know, get it out of the pools, put it in dry casks, but fortify the dry casks against accidents, against attacks, have monitors on it for radiation, temperature, pressure, and, and watchdog it all the time. And all that is not happening right now. So that's what we're calling for. It's an interim measure until we can figure out what to do in the future. But certainly transporting it from the Eastern United States out to the Southwest, just to have to move it again someday, we don't know where, that's the plan, is nonsense. It multiplies the transportation risks. Really what's driving it is the industry wants to offload the liability for this stuff that they've made onto the Department of Energy, which means taxpayers. Mm-hmm. And that's how we're going to stop it is we have, you know, taken part in the licensing proceedings. It's been a kangaroo court. It's been rigged against us. It's a rubber stamp. So now that we're done with that, for the most part, we are now in federal court. Um, one problem with these plans is they are illegal. There is actually a provision in law that says you can't open one of these interim sites if there's not a permanent repository. Hello? A de facto parking lot dump in Texas. That's in the law right now. And the Nuclear Regulatory Commission ignored the law. They just processed these applications and said, oh yeah, well, we're just gonna go forward. So we're in court to stop it. And we've got um, many other objections that are in court right now. So there's that. And um, we also have public comment periods that are going on as we speak. And how can we participate in that? Can we participate on Zoom and those public comment? How does that work? Well, the New Mexico public comment on the draft environmental impact statement is coming to a close on September 22nd. So that's about over. The Texas public comment will go on until November 3rd. So we have some time. And in fact, they just announced their call-in sessions, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. There are four of them in the first week or two of October. I don't have the dates memorized, Mm -hmm. but if folks go to our website, beyondnuclear.org, I'll try to put it right at the top of our homepage. Okay. And we also have a centralized storage section that has all this information. Okay. So, um, so you're proposing that, that uh, the nuclear, the nuclear facilities take care of their own storage, basically. Um, instead of just well, shipping it's an it interim all. Measure. Go ahead. Like, like you described at South Texas, that is not a great site for high level radioactive waste to be. I mean, hurricanes have already hit like Harvey, right? Right. That it's was very really dicey in terms of the reactor operations, but also the waste storage because the pools are so vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So we do have to harden it. We have to get the waste out of the pools to prevent a fire that could take out a time zone, essentially. But the dry casks have to be done right as well. And at places where this is not safe, where it's not safely doable, then perhaps it needs to go further inland to higher ground. Not a long distance, though, because it was generated there, people benefited there, and it can't be dumped on, you know, a low-income people of color community someplace else and there there was a fire at the south texas nuclear facility what five five or six years ago uh how risky is that sort of uh behavior i mean how you know these these places are supposed to be highly regulated uh there's a fire there we don't know how close it was to anything because you know we're just regular citizens but 
these, how often are these well, sort of things happening? All the time, almost every day, something happens in the nuclear power industry, you know. Uh, luckily for Texas, you've got the SEED Coalition out of Austin, Sustainable Energy and Economic Development, Karen Haddon. You've got Public Citizens, Texas Office, and other watchdog groups like Energia Mia, and a long list of others. I mentioned the Dallas Peace Center. Um, they stopped a new generation of reactors in Texas recently. They were gonna add units at South Texas Project to keep it going for decades into the future. But the problem is these old reactors are still out there. They are dangerously age degraded. We need to shut them down. It's a double bonus. You can't have a meltdown with a shutdown reactor and you're not making any more high level radioactive waste. But as we've been discussing, the high level waste that's already there, the low level waste that's already there, the radioactive contamination of the site which is a form of low-level waste, soil contamination, is bad enough, you know? So it's really like shut them down for safety and for wisdom and start cleaning it up as best we can. But I got scolded recently by a survivor of Hiroshima, uh, Habakasha, who said, clean up is a misnomer. You can't clean this stuff up. All you can do is move it someplace else. And that's so true. That's what we're talking about here. You know, waste control specialists is how reactors clean up low-level radioactive waste elsewhere in the country. They dump it in West Texas above the Oglala. Right. may clean up the reactors in Michigan, where I'm from, but it threatens the Oglala in West Texas. So you call that a cleanup? Not me. And go back to, um, uh, back to the, like if there, was a, if there was a fire in one of these pools, you, you said it would take out a time zone. Tell me a yeah. little bit more about how, how devastating it would be if a simple fire was to break out on one of these pools? Well, the pools, because the radioactivity content is just off the charts big. Um, I gave the example from Japan earlier, but there was a study in 2016 by some Princeton researchers, uh, Von Hippel was one of them. What they did is they looked at a potential pool fire and they looked at the meteorology that would be likely they had a meteorologist involved with state-of-the-art computer modeling. And their case study was the Peach Bottom nuclear power plant, which is on the border of Pennsylvania and Maryland. It's about 100 miles from where I'm sitting in Washington, D.C. right now. And uh, one scenario, the worst case scenario, was July 1st weather conditions. If this fire in a pool at Peach Bottom, which is an identical design to Fukushima Daiichi, by the way, a general electric boiling water reactor of the Mark I design, which almost had a fire in Japan. Um, their figures were, I can remember the property damages were $2 trillion because what would happen is the contamination would be so bad in several cities like Baltimore and Philadelphia and um, even New York City and on the outskirts of Boston that huge swaths of territory would have to be abandoned, including major cities. And the number right. of people that would be forced to become nuclear refugees was in the millions. So that is a pool fire at this Pennsylvania um, reactor. So um, yeah, that's why I say a time zone. Turning so, time zones into dead zones. There goes Houston, there goes Tech Austin, there goes San Antonio, and possibly Dallas as well. And reactor, um, you know, reactor accidents like we saw in Japan, like we saw at Chernobyl, Ukraine, like we saw at Three Mile Island. I mean, a lot of people suffered. It was covered up at Three Mile Island, but a lot of people were hurt, eventually died from cancer. 
So reactor accidents or radioactive waste storage pool fires, these are the risks, yeah. But when you shut the reactors down, you get rid of the one category and you limit the second, which sounds like a really good idea. Yeah, yeah sounds like a good idea to me. So uh, shut them all down yeah. is, the, is the takeaway. Um, yeah. uh, so, uh, and you said you do, you're working on, I imagine you guys are taking donations. Uh, sure, yeah, um, you know, I would actually encourage your listeners in Texas there to look up groups like the Seed Coalition and um, Energia Mia and um, Public Citizen Texas Office because they are fully engaged on um, fighting this dump in West Texas. So they could really use the resources. And of course, you know, beyond nuclear too at the national level, uh, yep. we really appreciate donations. Well, it would, this thing has to be, for, for now, this thing needs to be fought on the national level, I, I understand, in order to, because it's about the fight with the, the nuclear agency, the, say it for me. I, oh, the, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Thank you. <laughs> I don't say it as often as you do, and I don't have my notes in front of me. So, so this has to be fought on a national level. Um, but also, aren't there subsidies that are given to the nuclear facilities from Texas? I mean, the state is giving money to these guys as well, aren't they? Yeah, well, um, they get subsidies from the federal government. They get subsidies from the state government. Um, these days, the form of subsidies that are coming along are bailouts to keep the old reactors going. So it's really outrageous because they've been getting subsidies for more than a half century. Subsidy upon subsidy. Subsidies are supposed to get new industries going on their mm -hmm. own two feet. You know, This industry has been taking the subsidies its entire existence and still is massively. So there's so many different forms of it. I mean, one of the most outrageous is uh, insurance. It was only supposed to be on the books until 1967. It's still on the books. <laughs> and it's up for renewal again in 2025. There are some economists who think that the Price-Anderson liability coverage for nuclear power is worth $3 billion per year in subsidy to the industry. Insurance premiums, it doesn't have to pay because the ultimate liability falls on the U.S. taxpayer. Right. The way it works is um, if they have an accident, uh, let's see, what's the figure? $12.5 billion is the industry's total liability. Above that, it's the taxpayers. If the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, declares an extraordinary nuclear occurrence, which they did not do at Three Mile Island, and Congress acts to appropriate the money. That's a lot of ifs. What it means is, like at Three Mile Island, people could just be left blown in the wind. Sorry, we can't help you. The only help that came to people at Three Mile Island were out of court settlements with the nuclear utility sealed under non-disclosure agreements. So a lot of the truth is hidden behind these non-disclosure agreements about cancer deaths or you know, birth defects. People can't talk about it or they won't get their money anymore. So it's, it's criminal. That's just one one example of a subsidy the industry enjoys at our and expense. Three Mile they Island wouldn't exist without it. Three Mile Island is is it true that they still don't know if there's something still going on there as far as um, it burning? And is it you know they said it was a, you know going to burn down to China and they, and they cap it, but what's going on underneath where they've capped it? No, is the good news Three Mile Island is that yeah, I mean. The China syndrome really refers to 
what happened in Japan, actually, the, the, the melted cores did melt down, it appears in Japan, not only through the facility itself, but even into the ground, yeah. but not that far. I mean, not to China, uh, but some distance down into the grounds, into the groundwater, which is bad because that's a part of that flow at Fukushima Daiichi that's going into the ocean that they can't control or they choose not to because it would cost too much. So they just let it go. Cores sitting in groundwater, releasing their contents into that flow. So at Three Mile Island, um, luckily it didn't go that far, but they did melt half the core. And what they did is they got out what they could of that melted down fuel and they took it by train out to Idaho to this temporary storage out in Idaho and had all manner of incidents and mishaps. My board of directors president is based in St. Louis and it all came through there. So she was the watchdog and she is the institutional memory on the Keystone Cop mess ups that happened just in her area with just the Three Mile Island meltdown shipments that came through. So that was a few dozen shipments. Now we're talking with Holtec, New Mexico, 10,000 shipments. So you mentioned, you know, you roll the dice enough times, something's going to happen. A right? lot of room for mistake. Well, you heard it here first, y'all. Um, it's the Beyond Nuclear, and that's beyondnuclear.org? Yes, and I will put everything at the top of the homepage. So if you want to learn more and take action, I'll at the top. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for being with us. We will link all those links that you mentioned at the bottom of the YouTube page. And also, uh, I believe there's a landing page on Anchor. We'll do that as well. Thank you very much, Kevin Camps, for being with me. And thanks for coming to our first episode of the Texas Radical. My pleasure, Stacey. All right. Nice Have a great day. You too. Take care.